For May 1st, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 461. Goodbye, cruel world. Please remember to like and subscribe. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're talking about the things that we love, or sometimes things that we don't quite love as much (laughs) as the things that we love. Uh, This week, we are talking about The Circle, the film that was released uh, on Friday. It stars Emma Watson, Tom Hanks, uh, and others, and it is an adaptation of a novel from a few years ago by Dave Eggers. It's a, uh, it's a social media-fueled, um, near-future sci-fi dystopia. And we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about the, the way it works and why it's, uh, why it's interesting and, and uh, what we thought of the uh, film. Um, and it, it, it promises, uh, e- even if it isn't the greatest film in the world, it's, it's an interesting film uh, from a number of uh, angles, and it's one that we are excited to talk about. Warning will be uh, spoiling what happens in the circle, but don't worry about that. It it uh, it's pretty it much sucks. yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's it's what you expect. That is the voice of Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Welcome to the circle. <laughs> Hello, Matt. I welcome myself to the circle as well. <laughs> and that, and we also are joined by Mark Lee. Mark, uh, may the circle be unbroken. Oh, thank you, Matt. Sharing is caring, you know. That's what I always like to say. Sharing is caring. <laughs> Podcasting sure is caring. I am uh, Matt Rather, and we are talking about uh, about the circle. All right, spoilers start now. Um, let's go to. Uh, let's... No, seriously, don't see this movie. It was pretty bad. <laughs> like we saw this, so you don't have to. You and... compared this movie unfavorably to Suicide Squad, right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was going to go further. I was very uncomparably to oh, Batman versus Superman, uh, various other uh, unfortunate cinematic occurrences. But yeah, I, I, I disliked it thoroughly, and also disliked well, that, uh, Suicide Squad. I mean, that, that, that's interesting. What is the your dislike? But I walked out of the the theater and was like, huh. That was not a very good piece of filmmaking, but you seem to have to harbor a sort of visceral hatred for the uh, for the whole film. So what what uh, accounts for that for you? Like, what was the um, what was the driving force behind your your uh, unquenchable hatred? Yeah, I called it uh, in our back channel earlier. I called it an assault on reason and the human experience. <laughs> and I'm, I, I, that was my kind of uh, you know, gut reaction maybe 30 minutes after seeing it. And uh, three hours after seeing it, I'm not walking that back. <laughs> uh, because uh, this movie uh, tries to set up a, a plausible circumstance where uh, humans shed very basic and fundamental aspects of their humanity um, about their relationships with other people and with themselves, um, particularly the notion of privacy. And I understand that on a daily basis, uh, we trade our privacy for all sorts of things, for convenience, for laughter, for personal grand, uh, uh, personal uh, aggrandizement. And, uh, you know, our notion of privacy now compared to what it was 30 years ago is vastly different. But when you get down to the level of there's so much transparency in this world that it's okay for the everybody to watch my parents have sex because of all the cameras that I set up and I'm live streaming everything all the time. When you get to that point, you know, you get to you 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 transcend the 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 common shared experience that everybody has of I grow up in a house and I share my environment with other people and I gather strength from that, but at the same time, I don't want that all the time. Uh, to quote Axel Rose in the seminal philosophical piece of the 20th century, November Rain. Sometimes you need some time on your own. Everybody needs some time on your own. Uh, ends my initial rant. So let's take it from there. What do you What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's the aspect of the of the because her father is supposed to be ill, right? Like, and it's the aspect of sort of humiliation, right? Like, it's it's definitely a have your cake and eat it too uh, sort of movie in that it wants you know it wants to get moralistic about certain things while at the same time. Um, 
being very uh, while, while at the same time kind of reveling in in the spectacle that they provide so i mean in this respect it's like all of the rest of american entertainment and culture uh but you know it's it's not just the parents having sex it's that that uh her dad with a with a you know debilitating uh incurable disease uh, having sex using the the aid of some sort of apparatus that's briefly that's briefly glimpsed right like or in yeah. the scene with in the scene at the backyard party uh where he soils himself the, the, the you know the father loses control of of his bowels because of his ms um i think i think it's ms it's not gone into in super detail yeah. Yeah, they, they mentioned it. Yeah, it's MS. Yeah, yeah. Um, that like uh, you know he loses control of his bowels at the party, and it's it's sort of uh, it's very it's very embarrassing. Um, yeah, no, I I should say that I read the novel uh, that this movie is based on and, and sort of our impetus to see the movie was based on the fact that I uh, I was reading the novel. Now, I was I was reading the novel uh, because at the time we were recording for members the uh, the Overthinking It book club uh, about 1984 and so I had technological dystopia on the brain and uh, I realized there was this recent novel by Dave Eggers whom I generally like um, the, that uh, you know, uh, was might be on on point might bring something to that now now the novel is it's it's different from the book it ends differently from the book there's a lot more texture you know the the um I, I mean, I won't say that the some of the character transitions, the conversions are are more believable. They're not exactly more believable, but they don't they don't uh, that doesn't matter as much because here's the crucial thing: the novel is satire, right? The no, the novel is satirizing. Uh, a certain type of of argument, a certain type of worldview, and it's also from five years ago, when the the state of the public discussion about privacy, about you know WikiLeaks like things, about uh, uh, surveillance, about um, I don't know d- d- devices in your home that monitor what you do or on your wrist or whatever, like. All this was all this was at a at a different place, and so taken in that context, it isn't quite as um, doesn't seem it didn't seem quite as ridiculous. But as a satire, I mean, it shared a um, a weakness common to a lot of satire, or it's it's a weakness if if what you're looking for is sort of uh, naturalistic storytelling, right? Like uh, which said that the characters weren't fully uh, three dimensional people; it, they were uh, straw men arguing with. Uh, arguing with one another. It, you mean the real the real plight of the oppressed is not that of artisanal antler chandelier makers, <laughs> the people who end up on the wrong side of the. Uh, it's not Princess Die Antler who's going to be on the wrong side of the great machine when it well, comes to grind us, our bones into dust. <laughs> no, it's. I just thought uh, that I mean, Mercer, Mercer, the character of Mercer is such a huge. Who would object to being? I mean, he's so obviously a joke, and yet he's not funny. And that and that was I don't know I again I don't want to talk about how the movie is bad we've talked about that I mean we could talk about it a little bit it's fun but I don't want to we've talked about it on the podcast before how we try not to talk too much about how the movie's bad I want to talk about how the movie is interesting because somebody liked it right like its mom liked it or something I don't know. but uh, <laughs> no but it's, I thought, its mom but, like, cut it off its mom uh, stopped <laughs> skyping it at a certain point because it just couldn't take it anymore mom just couldn't uh, participate in in what the the movie was yeah. going on yeah I mean Mercer in the I mean uh, and again like the uh, artisanal antler uh, pardon me the artisanal antler making um, character makes sense as a satire right like if you are trying if you are trying to poke holes in the sort of uh the bay area the like the san francisco area idea of what you know contemporary uh artisanality looks like or or sort of contemporary uh authenticity culture or something like that looks like it that that that's what it is it also helps in the in the book that he's a lot more insufferable like he's really he's really a jerk and really mansplains to may in a high-handed way but then so does everybody like the whole the 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 story of the book is is you know um 
of her kind of signing on to the agendas of of uh, progressively more uh, senior and powerful men. Uh, and yeah, which is way, known to women in America as like advancing in your career, right? right. That's, that's the experience. <laughs> oh dear. Um, by the way, we should just briefly fill in a little bit of the plot here, some of the setup, right? Because uh, the main character, May Emma Watson's character, uh, grows up in kind of semi-rural, uh, lower middle class, lower class California. Her childhood friend is Mercer, who is the artisanal antler making chandelier, antler chandelier maker. Um, and May goes off to, you know, to join this elite Silicon Valley firm, the circle, which is basically Google combined with Facebook. Um, and, um, and Mercer, you know, poo-poos her decisions, uh, has a break with her because, um, because May shared a picture of the artisanal antler chandelier on social media and said that Mercer made this. And then people accused of accused Mercer of being a dear murderer. Um, yes. Which he 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 says a no deer were were directly killed by him in the making of the of the chandelier. But uh, that's Mercer's function in this is sort of to be like you know you used to be a simple person. We had an an an, an offline relationship, and I you know I basically like I only check my email once a day, and I'm too cool for for email and social media. If you're not enthralled by now, I don't know what's wrong with you because that right. oh, to and, me and, sounds and, like a great movie. And, and later, and later, Emma Watson's uh, Mace Mace actions, uh, you know, fueling the uh, cyber dystopic, uh, all-seeing the um, uh, social media panopticon, uh, wind up. Long story short, killing Mercer because uh, stalkers. I'm, I'm so, still so stupid saying this. Um, uh, social media stalkers find him at May's request and drive him off of a bridge, and he dies. Right. Yeah. Whereas in reality, it would be May who would be the recipient of constant death threats and harassment merely for existing as a woman on the internet. Yeah, I know. Where, right. where were those in the in the pop up uh, yeah. in the pop up thing? I'll say that in the novel, uh, he actually makes the choice to drive off the bridge rather than so it's a suicide rather than a huh. rather than an accident rather than being hounded hounded into uh, uh, you know hounded into a, a tragic accident. He realizes that that he's not going to win and that he doesn't. And, you know, he and says goodbye, cruel world. Uh, <laughs> please remember to like and subscribe. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so, so the circle. <laughs> so, so the circle presents. So, so Mark's objection to the circle is very different from what my objection to the circle was. And, and this is again to sort of flesh out the different. Uh, the different kind of aspects and dimensions of the movie. So Mark's objection was that the sort of the ideas, what I would describe as the ideas of the movie fall short, right? Yeah, the, 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 the premise and the way yeah. the characters react to the event in, in, in the movie all just completely blew away my suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Whereas for me, I felt like the characters, that the ideas were the only thing in the movie for the most part. And the characters, uh, which makes sense with hearing from Matt, that, this was a satire. It makes a lot of sense. The characters were very flat and uninterested and uninteresting, right? Uh, and part of what made them uninteresting is that they were uninterested. They didn't seem particularly engaged in what was happening. But the best characters were the two trainers, the HR people who came over to make sure <laughs> they were great. I hope that they get a lot of work from that clip. I hope that goes right on their reel and just kills it for them, where they talk to May about how she needs to raise, how she, how they're concerned that she's not participating in the voluntary weekend activities that are associated with her job, right? Of course, they're voluntary, but, you know, purely they're optional. Rating, purely optional. Yeah, they're, they're clearly optional, but they have a wonderful uncanniness to them that perhaps the rest of the movie would have benefited from. Um, but that all said... This, the circle in its it, as a whole, I don't think the circle is is a coherent. It, I don't think it's it, it's uh, it seeks to be a coherent critique of any of this, right? And it's it is definitely a uh, a sort of greatest hits of a bunch of different sorts of problems, right? Just in so much the same way that the circle is kind of an amalgam of a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different uh, advances in tech, and the characters are all kind of. Uh, mosaics of, of different sort of character traits that don't really coalesce into fully realized people. Um, but the circle did make, did advance like a bunch of sort of individual points that were, uh, not, they, the circle didn't present them with nuance. The movie didn't present them with a nuance, but the question that the movie raised had potential for nuance. I thought like, uh, well, like what would be an example? Like, um, uh, like, well, like, like the idea of, uh, 
so 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 the idea that a, a injured or disabled person right experiences life uh, and the world through the experiences of others that are shared with that person, right? Like if you go and do some awesome thing, you come back and you tell a story about it to the person who's stuck at home, and then that person gets to live through what you did. Like if they read a book, right, or they watch a movie, right? If you're if you're stuck on a bed, I think the example they use is a, a, a child with cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy, who's stuck in a wheelchair, right? Um, cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy. Uh, yeah, I always yeah, get confused. Yeah. Uh, and and this idea that everybody owes the people who can't experience the world a share of their experience because all of human experience is sort of held in trust and has a sort of a value that everybody could share in if we shared it with each other. And now there well, are the, there the, are, the, just to clarify, Pete, the movie goes a, a step beyond that and says that the everybody owes everybody else all of their well, yes, experiences. Yes, yes, in and that's totality. The, yeah. And that's the way the movie obliterates the subtlety. Right. Because it's and the idea that and they just sort of paper over how she's allowed to go to the bathroom. But she but, you know, I think they they pay one reference to it when she's waking up. And so one of the sort of tweets that's floating in the air around her, because a lot of the like many movies that deal with social media, this one tries to present the sort of presence of the, the Internet in kind of floating animated three dimensions like around the characters. Right. Uh, you know, this is this is going back to the days of swim fan where it's like, how do I film AOL? How do I make AOL movie worthy? Right. Like that's quite a challenge. Uh, but she's sort of surrounded by tweets and comments and stuff from the circle, not from Twitter. Right. Because it's all off brand. It's all the Hydrox. Um, but yeah, but one of them says, I always fart when I wake up. Right. Is I think one of the tweets that pops yeah, up. I remember it's like, that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like yeah, you because know, I you know I think you it, it struck me it struck you because it was uh, I think to a certain extent thinking. it was the most truthful thing in the whole in the yeah. whole movie. <laughs> like if she just woke up and just farted, right? Like there's that's the movie, right? <laughs> like the circle and everybody and it's just like she wakes up and she doesn't feel good and she's like sort of curses under her breath and farts and then gets up and goes to the mirror and is like, "Hi everyone, I'm brushing my teeth," right? Uh, because the one thing the move one thing the movie really conspicuously doesn't address is the difference between the self that we perform on social media and the self that we live outside of social media. Well, right. right? I Which mean, the, the, yeah. the th- I I hate to be like, oh, it's different in the book, guy, right? But like uh, uh, that that progression was uh, was addressed more in uh, in the novel with the um, with the idea of the public and private self. Uh, collapsed. Uh, now, this is a, a specifically Orwellian idea, right? Like in 1984, Winston talks about the few square centimeters of space inside your own head uh, that you control. And the idea that the sort of social or political self is different from the, the you know, private subjective self, right? And that that difference, that, that is actually an, an aspect of oppression when that difference is collapsed, when you are forced to be uh, your your public self all the time. Right. And this has gone into, you know, this has gone into a little more, um, there's a little more room to go into it in the, the, uh, uh, in the, the novel about like how, how the kind of the, the tension, because you get access to sort of characters, you get access to characters thoughts. Um, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I was, cause I was thinking about this a lot as an adaptation, you know, um, and that's uh, that, we, you know, how does this use the tools of cinema to make the points that, that the, the uh, book was trying to make? And, and like the book is a critique of sort of Silicon Valley culture or uh, maybe San Francisco Bay, you know, Bay Area type culture. Uh, it's a it's a critique of kind of techno futurism or techno um, uh, um, it's a uh, it's a it's a pretty spot on satire of um, the productization of of technology. Like I, it's a very good the the cameras being called sea change. They're like the little ubiquitous surveillance cameras uh, that are the size of a I don't know the of a marble like the not a not a little marble the big marble that you the fought. Augie yeah the Aggie is that. Um, uh, that that's like, uh, you know, that, that calling those, that camera is sea change because it's a sea change in the way that, that, uh, cameras work. And we also see 
change, right? Like that's the kind of stupid product name that really would, you know, that that really would happen. And there are a dozen of those in uh, uh, in the novel, and they're sort of they're sort of progressively more. Um, progressively more ridiculous as as it goes on and uh it also um sort of deals with the the uh oppressive weight of keeping up with social media and having in order to have some sort of algorithmic rank maintained and to kind of maintain status in the company in order to do this essentially meaningless you know uh thumbs up of of everything all the time right like that that uh, uh that you have to kind of keep up with this this you know uh, high urgency low importance um flow of noise and that this is something that actually takes like saps your saps your life force uh saps your life force to to a great extent um i yeah no one you know you just sort of wonder nobody actually seems to believe the things that they are uh the things that they're saying uh in this movie and why um why does it take emma watson to uh uh to get the the genius uh renegade programmer to hack into the system and and distribute all the private information like why does it why why is the the WikiLeaksing of all of this uh you know all of this nefarious doings corporate doings why is that um contingent on emma watson why hasn't it happened already you know it's a because tough- it's heavily implied that uh, uh john boyega aka stormtrooper finn uh, you know, had access to this all along because he was like the fundamental architect of the circle, right? Yeah, I mean, she doesn't provide anything, right? Like, except the the impetus to do it, right? Like, if he could, uh, and he's actually the one who gets her woke about you know privacy and and uh, monopoly and and stuff like that. Uh, you know, get, well, we get I mean, another of the train of mansplainers for her. <laughs> well, the practical the practical reason advanced in the movie is that she has so many followers on social media that are constantly looking at her that if she says something, then it will be broadly disseminated in all media instantly, right? Everybody will know. But of course, in the real world, there are all the piracy networks where if you put a file like that out there, it would get to a lot of people anyway, right? You don't need uh, you don't need Kendall Jenner to be like, by the way, have you heard about the Panama Papers, right? Like that's not how it works. <laughs> 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 uh, that's what that Pepsi ad was about. There yeah, were secret, exactly. there were secret Look, documents. Watch it backwards, watch it backwards uh, and and count the number of Pepsi cans in each shot, and then arrange that in hexadecimal. Oh, oh, and- Harambe. <laughs> <laughs> it smells Harambe. <laughs> it's been Harambe all along. He's not dead. Don't tell anyone. He's a Tupac hologram. Man, if the Harambe Tupac hologram was with Frank Sinatra, how great would that be? Oh, sorry, that's a reference to something else. Never mind. The members will know. The members will know. Uh, <laughs> okay, can, can, let me ask a question because Matt, you've been talking about the book as a satire a lot, and uh, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I get no. Um, and my brain immediately uh, jumped to a few conclusions. We're all related. One is that this movie was not a satire. It was doing something else. It was being played. No, it was paranoid. Straight. It was like a th- it was a thriller in the kind of paranoid style of yeah, like of the net, the net or like yeah. uh, the con- going back to like the conversation or even before, you know. But yeah. then my, my mind also jumped to, well, um, Silicon Valley is a satire. It is a vicious satire. It is very funny. And it skewers Silicon Valley um, much more effectively. So, and you know, you could have that scene where um, uh, after the car crash, right? Uh, the, the the Tom Hanks character, the the evil mastermind of this of this company, um, then you know tries to spin it in the company's favor and say that you know the circle will provide algorithmic this that and the other and self driving technology to avoid car crashes like this. Um, uh, you know that would have been played out for for hilarious laughs in, in Silicon Valley. Um, and then my mind also jumped to Black Mirror, which is not comedic. Uh, it's extremely dark and, and dystopic, uh, uh, but it is a satire. Um, it is not uh, what you sort of said, you know, sort of that, that the, the, it's not a thriller in the way that uh, The Net or, uh, or, or this movie were. Firm, and any the, other, yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, help me out here. Help me understand, like, you know, um, the, those things as satire and why that, why those are satires, why this movie wasn't a satire and how you can have a satire, uh, that can be comedic versus not comedic while still, uh, executing a sat- satiric goals. 
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, so, uh, maybe um, Pete can help me out here, but but yeah. like the idea the idea of satire is that it it sort of lampoons um, human excesses uh, in in service of a program of of social change, right? And this is what makes this is what makes satire different from just straight up parody or you know farce, right? Or just you know just craziness oh aren't these people crazy right uh silicon valley might be more of a farce uh set you know in in the tech industry because it's about um uh it's about ineptitude really they're all clowns like in in a certain way they're all clowns even richard the kind of the genius main character is a is a clown because he's uh um it, you know, after a number of life lessons that should make him no better, he's still uh, very socially inept and incapable of, like, n- navigating the world as an adult. Um, uh, uh, but but satire, whether it's whether it's sort of witty satire or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, like Oscar Wildean satire or whether it's, you know... Uh, crazy uh, uh, lampoony satire. I think like they're the, you know, the juvenilian mode or the Horatian mode of, of satire is aimed at, um, is aimed at uh, change rather than just the kind of the gratification of, of seeing, uh, of, of seeing the clowns kind of clowning in front of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so to provide a different perspective, although that's all dead on, what makes this not comedy? And what what it would have to be to be comedy. I think that the key is in the kayak. Because consider the kayak, right? So I knew that I was in trouble in the first shot of this movie, which is a shot of water, right? There's like a shot of water, of like murky water. And then there's this, there's a kayak that kind of like cruises over the surface of the murky water. And Emma Watson is in the kayak. And it's pretty obvious that what the shot is trying to communicate is that there that she, there is like there's something beneath the water, right? Like, like she's in danger because there's this big, vast, empty gray water. Now, what this has to do with technology, it's a little bit imprecise. It, that's why it's a bad Downton Abbey moment and why the, one of the reasons the movie doesn't really hang together. But but later in the movie, right? So this idea that Emma Watson is paddling alone in a kayak through San Francisco Bay. Which is full of boats, right? And is, is is such a bad idea. Well, yeah, and there's lots of wind, and there's a strong current that takes the water right out of the bay into the ocean. And it's it's uh, notoriously know, freezing that water, yeah. right? Like, which yeah. is what made Alcatraz so you know such an impenetrable fortress. Yeah, uh, it was the last line of defense. Yeah, if you if you actually if you're on Amazon Prime now. Uh, the first season of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack is available on Amazon Prime. And there is an episode where they attempt escape from Alcatraz using various means. And you see just how difficult it is to paddle a raft like across across like the entire width of San Francisco Bay. So so Emma Watson being out in San Francisco Bay in the kayak is is first presented as sort of threatening. Then it's presented as sort of like a moment of peace and repose where she gets to reflect on herself and look at the bridge and everything's nice. And then like right in the jump to the third act of the movie, there is a just a, a mind-blowingly stupid choice that she makes that may makes and does she make the same choice in the in the book matt the one to go uh, to go kayaking alone yeah to go kayaking alone in the dark uh, yeah it's motivated it's motivated a little more oh, by, yeah. by what yeah. has happened in the novel there's a run-up to it that makes a lot more sense than than what happens uh in the film and and it's worth it's worth noting that in the novel none of the kayaking scenes are scenes of threat it's about the kayaking sequences are about uh uh solitude and unmediated experience but right, that's right but but here there it's about threat it's a, like it's there's like a monster in the deep or something like that yeah. Like I, the, did you have a trailer for the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie in front of this? And it, it was like that, that some like zombie shark is going to jump out of the water and uh, devour poor Emma Watson. Um, yeah. But but think but but and I don't think it's a stupid inclusion in the movie. It's just a very poor decision that she makes. And uh, and it's a position, a decision that puts her in a lot of danger. And so she paddles the boat out. And this is a really complicated moment that happens here it, in the sense of what it could have been and also what it is. She paddles the boat out in the darkness out into the middle of San Francisco Bay with no lights. And she comes across a giant tanker ship. 
or either a passenger ship or a tanker ship. We don't get a really good look at it. Other than that, it's enormous, right? She doesn't know it's there until it's right on top of her. It blows its horn and she gets capsized and thrown into the water, right? Nearly drowns. It's very cold. And and, and the sort of, uh, so, okay, so that's what happens, right? And then she's rescued. And it turns out she's rescued because the circle is watching everything. And they have a, they have a camera on the beach to watch the seals or something. And somebody sees her drowning and calls the police. Now, now this, this sequence of events could mean a lot of different things, right? In this sense, what it means, what it, what it should mean, based on what's been set up, is that the bay is dangerous. She goes into the bay, into danger, that she finds something even more dangerous, which is the ship that could kill her, and then she is rescued by the most dangerous people, right? The, the circle is actually more dangerous than the boat. And I think that's sort of what the scene, as it fits into a thriller movie, sort of aspires to communicate. But of course, it's not really shot that way. Uh, there's nothing sinister enough about the police appearing and it gets a little confusing if it were really a satire like if this were a satire scene first of all you would never really seriously believe that Emma Watson's character was going to die right like that that she was actually in peril there like when you think imagine whatever I want to imagine how a story would be different if it were a comedy I just put the stock Will Ferrell character in this situation and figure out how I would feel about that character in in the circumstances (laughs) (laughs) right like so like if you wanted to make the Godfather a comedy like make the Godfather Will Ferrell like how would he act right he would be like thank you for coming on the day of my daughter's wedding it's like oh actually uh, that was yesterday Uh, you know this is the party Right. It was, the thing was, yeah, OK, yeah, no, no, no. Keep talking. Keep talking. Right. There would be sort of like a, a, a in, in indifference. There would be a separation between the sort of seriousness of the petition and the aloofness of the Godfather. Um, that's 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 neither here nor there. The point is that if Will Ferrell were in there, he would fall in the water. And, and the big thing would be, oh, my God, the boat is so big. Right. And it comes out of nowhere. And like she's being really brave and really stupid at the same time. Right. I mean, if you're saying that the purpose of the of the bay is to communicate unmediated experience and solitude and then having like a comically enormous boat capsizer that's coming through the bay that's funny right that's like hey you have privacy by the way facebook just showed up and like totally destroyed your privacy and like your little boat had no chance right uh like that's that could be funny that could be played for laughs you you would a it would be both that you would fear for her less but she would also be more distressed because she's sort of medium level distressed like she's only as distressed enough as it is required to like tread water in a crisis you know she's not like really upset by the situation in fact there's a lot that happens to may in this movie that you would think would upset her more than it does she seems somewhat imperturbable at times right especially relative to her friend who or slash uh, relative i think it was a friend played by karen gillum the the girl who waited Amy Pond, uh, who is high on speed and has no sleep and deliberately looks like hell. But 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 that's neither here nor there. The point is that if the if the kayaking, the kayaking is trying to be threatening and failing. And that's part of what makes the movie bad is that it's just not effective as a thriller and it's trying to be a thriller. But if you wanted the kayaking to be funny, the stakes would be different. And then the sort of the pathos would be different, like the reactions would be different. The feelings would be different. Um and I think that's a big thing about Silicon Valley, too, right, is that when you think about the sort of archetypical CEO speech motif, like the CEO is coming out on stage and giving a big speech, right, like like that is a sort of uh, – an ele- that is a performance happening that can be spun in a lot of ways. How do you spin it to be funny? How do you spin it to be scary? How do you spin it to be, like, educational, right? If you want it to be more of like a, what is it, a Chautauqua? I'm reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. If you want it to be like a uh, a morality speech, it would be different, right? Um, so that's my example for you, Mark, is that, like, if you wanted this to feel more like a satire, uh, if you wanted it to feel like, like a satire, it would need to make more of a point. But in particular, if you wanted it to feel more like a comedy, then the the balance of peril versus harmlessness would have to be different, mm. right? She would have to be have to be she'd have to be in less danger, but but show that she's in more danger. Uh, as I think, as I think, like what? Because you want to watch how she reacts to being threatened. Right. And maybe it's that she doesn't care. And maybe that's the joke. That's the other way it could go. Maybe it's that she's sort of this super sunny millennial who, like, totally doesn't get how ridiculous she's being. Right. And that's the satire, which it sort of is at times in this movie. 
I guess, well, she's really insensitive to like the thoughts and feelings of her parents in a way that's sort of like, oh, come on, you're an adult, right? Like, be reasonable. But um, I don't know. Anyway, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I have some additional thoughts that I want to piggyback on that, but I believe Matt has an important announcement. Oh, it's well, it's uh, yeah, it's the most important announcement. Everyone, please remember to like and subscribe. Oh, uh, you heard me mention before that uh, we were recording for members uh, the Overthinking It book club. Uh, it's triumphant return, talking about George Orwell's 1984. Now, this is a novel who, uh, in in light of recent events here in the United States, sales of this novel spiked. Uh, I don't know why on earth that would be uh, that that uh, people would want to buy George Orwell's classic dystopian novel 1984. Uh, could it could it be that Americans sense the coming of an authoritarian state so thoroughly conformist that it verged on totalitarian? Could it be uh, that they already realized that they had uh, let the mechanisms of, of corporate surveillance into their homes in the form of their series and their Alexas and their uh, OK Googles? Uh, did they worry about the inevitable onset of a, of a never-ending war? Uh, we'll, we'll never know. But we decided it was time to to look at um, this uh, classic novel from from George Orwell, and we did. Uh, and it, uh, members at the uh, well, actually, in full Harvey levels, got to see each episode as it was posted. Uh, three episodes covering the uh, each book of the novel, and a fourth covering the larger cultural and uh, artistic influence that Orwell has had on our thinking and on our um, our favorite books, movies, and and so on. Uh, so now the the book club is complete, and the four uh, episodes available as MP3 files can be bought and downloaded by uh, by anyone, even if you're not a uh, an Overthinking It member. So uh, there's a link in the show notes for this episode on Overthinking It. Uh, whatever podcast client you're on you can scroll down to see the show show notes and look uh look for the link there or go to overthinkingit.com slash store where you will find the uh where you'll find the um uh the the book club there uh it's it's wonderful to be able to offer it to you i think it's a uh fantastic uh discussion uh, it features me along with uh, matt belinke who uh you will know if you listen to this podcast who hopes it uh who hosts it uh ryan Sheely is there rachel is there and uh john parrich is there it's always nice when that when he can come come around so uh check out the overthinking it book club for 1984 for downloadable episodes uh it's in the um it's in the store or uh if you'd like you can become a member get the episodes and uh so much more uh including um the Pete Cast, a uh, a monthly podcast where Pete Fenzel talks to you nonstop for an hour, and uh, if you like the overthinking, that's what, that's how you sell it. <laughs> you know what, Pete? That is some people's idea of heaven. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, you, you're enough. selling yourself short, my friend. <laughs> like uh, I, I uh, listened um, uh, the the one. Well, uh, the the one that's my favorite is the one on the Americans um, because Pete's analysis of the Americans is is spot on, and he makes a, a great case for it being um, uh, underappreciated and, and one of the best shows on on television. We also record uh, question of the week segments. We've sort of excised them from the uh, from the main podcast, but we still do them uh even though they were kind of slowing down the the main topic of the podcast they're still a fun um a fun uh feature for for fans and and people who have been listening for a little while so you can get those in the the digital library at the the top two levels of membership and and so much more and and hey uh, you know the the members it's it's a thing on the internet when you have something that you have been doing as a hobby that you've been giving away for free and you start to charge money for there are inevitably detractors uh you know there are you know well why do you need money why, is, why isn't it all why can't it be like this uh, like the circle everything is just sharing is caring guys you know um i mentioned john parrish a minute ago it, he like all of us uh uh has a, a full life a, a family a, a demanding job and and um 
the fact that his articles can uh, can stay on overthinking it uh, because of member support right that the that the uh, the small monthly subscriptions that our our members pay allow us uh, to keep that voice in the fold and uh, you know to keep regular articles from him that we can, we can all enjoy and uh, by the way, th- that times a lot of the content that you see on the site, the members are really enabling that and making that happen. And so we're all, uh, they're providing a service to all of them, uh, you know, and we all, uh, we all at Overthinking It appreciate them very much. So, so give a thought to becoming a member of Overthinking It. All right. That's enough of that. Uh, back to the, uh, back to the podcast. Mark, what do you think of, uh, of, of the definition of satire that Pete, um, that Pete proposed to you? It made me think of uh, – maybe go back to my original points of comparison, which were Silicon Valley and Black Mirror, and I realized that I was kind of pulling upon the wrong thing. And a better point of comparison is actually Starship Troopers, I think, um, which we know and love here on Overthinking It, and we readily cite as a biting satire of, um, of fascism and militarism uh, and jingoism. Uh, it is not a comedy. Um, parts of it are, are comedic, I suppose, uh, but it sets out – to tell its story, and then the the characters go about their actions in a fairly believable way in reaction to events. Uh, but it all unfolds in this uh, ultimate. And they 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 uh, ostensibly are triumphant over the bugs, um, but uh, their entire uh, their entire uh, goals and, and actions, their enterprises, undercut horrifically by um, the the brutal militarism and fascism. That uh, has brought him to that that point and 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 presages kind of unending war and suffering for them, uh, even though they're they're cheering and, uh, and having a good time at the end. Um, that is the I think the movie that I was ex- uh, maybe the movie that I was expecting or maybe the movie that uh, it, it aspired to be. But um, the circle is not Starship Troopers, right? Um, it, it doesn't undercut itself. It just kind of is itself. And, uh, and and doesn't do a good job of that in, in, in selling its message, which I suppose is – well, actually, I'm not – I really don't know what the message is. That's a whole other – maybe that's a, another way to take this conversation. Um, you know, going into it, I thought this was going to be a cautionary tale about um, the surveillance state or in this case, you know, surveillance society and surveillance uh, capitalism. Uh, whereas at the end, though, I thought that – uh, what happens is that you know May and uh, and, uh, and and Finn Stormtrooper Finn they blow the lid off the whole thing and they expose uh, all of the inner workings of the circle. Uh, none of the specifics by the which are revealed. You know beyond just kind of like I guess like you know they're trying to do their thing and, and make a lot of money from it. And you think that they have triumphed over um, this horrible surveillance state. But going back to the kayak, right? She's back on the kayak at the end of it, and the drones are buzzing around her, and she looks at the drones and says hello. It's like, you know, uh, she has come to accept this, the constant surveillance state and the lack of privacy as the new reality, and she has just adapted to it. And I was kind of thunderstruck by that. Um, and so uh, I, I, guess, uh, I guess to take this uh, conversation in a different direction, then, is that the message of the movie, that this is coming and we should just learn to uh, adapt to it and, uh, as best as we can? Is that the message of the movie? I mean, I think the message of the movie is incoherent at best, right? Because when she is sort of toppling, um, when she's toppling the unscrupulous heads of this company, she's not uh, by, by threatening to reveal all of their information by subjecting them to the same kind of transparency. They probably don't the, subjecting them to the same kind of uh, uh, scrutiny that everyone else is being subjected by by these sort of surveillance technologies. Um, Right. It's not. She. It's not clear that she is making uh, that that she's destroying the company. She's sort of making it better or making it more ideologically or or ethically pure, rather than rather than saying that these things are ipso facto uh, ipso facto bad. Right. And there. I mean, it's it's a powerful image. Well, no, it's not. It it could be a powerful image in another context of all the people using the screens of their phone to shed light and then kind of like standing up, right? It's it's a uh, uh it's highly available to symbolism, 
right? And uh, uh, the fact that the the film sort of does it uh, uses this uh, you know striking visual uh, maneuver without really cashing out what it might mean symbolically or on a on a larger scale, right? Like is is just one of a, a set of kind of failures of planning, I think that 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 go go into this so is it is it that like uh, some things are only hinted at like monetization right is your information being sold to other people for whatever purposes they have right like uh uh, the, uh computer analysis of uh things like there's there's sort of talk about facial recognition and tracking and like implanting tracking chips into children to protect them and things things like this um these things are hinted at but it's never clear totally why um circle stuff is bad why sort of social media surveillance is bad and it's never clear in the estimation of this movie why privacy is good right like is privacy is privacy an instrumental good or is it an intrinsic good that i mean you know first question right like is it good to be private because it's good to be private or is it good to be private because it saves you from petty humiliations like farting in bed or uh you know get getting your um uh, getting your sex life broadcast all over the internet or something like that and and it, there isn't an answer it's not clear uh in in the it's not clear in the um the thing the the uh in the kind of the the uh what the message Me- no yeah. the, I mean, like i mean like message or moral but it's not i mean if you yeah. want to send a message use western union right like i don't in the shall uh, i'll say the artistic project of yeah. of this movie right yeah i would i agree with you that it's not coherent and partially it's because that the satirical mission has been undermined but i would i would lean a fair so the thing that the movie really loses when it changed the ending is it loses the idea that may really buys into the mission of the circle, despite everything that's happened. May is not the hero of the story. May is not a good person. I think, I think that's, I think that's fair, right? That, that to say that at least in the sort of Dave Eggers mindset, may is not right yeah. about the world. Oh, right. right? Absolutely. Yeah, and because what may, may basically trivializes the problems of other people, uh, even ones that she sort of feels partially responsible for, uh, including those of Mercer, including those of her parents, including those of her bosses. Uh, may doesn't May is mostly concerned with herself, um, which is fine, you know. But so is everybody else. But um, the ways in which May objects to what is happening around her tend to be mollified when people give her things, right? Uh, and I think that's that's one of the big things that the circle is really about, I would say, from my estimation, is about what is in this discourse that makes people OK with it, because it's not normal for people to be OK with all these things. And one of the things is, what do you get out of it? Right. You get all this stuff out of it. You know, she gets the health care. She gets the bracelets. She gets to see Beck at work. You know, they've got the, the do- <laughs> they have the doga class where they have dog yoga. Right. <laughs> and and uh, see, and, that was and, great. There was a there was a satirical section, just the like the the kind of uh, the modern workplace or the like the tech campus, the Google style tech campus with all the amenities. Uh, and you wonder how any work goes on in in this place, you know, and it was yeah. it was funny and it was also it had a point about about the modern workplace yeah and in fact you could have seen that been spun out i think the best parts of the movie were when it was kind of dwelling on that and could have spun that out into more of a nightmare world but one of the critiques that i felt really stood out was uh when mercer says that uh you know i used to like smiley faces i used to give smiley faces and frowning faces to people when we when i was a child right like why does everybody care about smiley faces and frowning faces and unicorns right that that all of this uh what, what they're, they're really not so much talking about this, what the technology this might, be, and- this might be a good time to break in and say please rate this podcast with five stars in the <laughs> <laughs> because this this isn't really a movie that's about what technology enables people to do it's a movie about how you make people feel good about things that they otherwise wouldn't like <laughs> such as like 
the situation where you see your parents having sex and broadcast it to millions of people. How do you get to a situation where that's something that you willingly do and where it's you're okay with it? Right. I mean, the other the other bookmark to that Mercer saying that is that when they go looking for Mercer on the soul search or whatever it is. Right. Uh, was it for Mercer or was it for the uh, where they're looking for the murderer lady? Yeah. yeah and they the, put mob, up the, the mob justice. Yeah. And they put up the picture of the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz, and they say like, "I think I found her," and everyone's like, "Oh, right." Um, there's something about the way that the uh, you talked about uh, productification, I guess, yeah. which is which is I, I intuitively understand what you say when you use that word. Not a term I've heard used myself. I'm not quite in as much of the tech parlance as you are, so that's new to me. But there seems to be a way in which the the customer experience, the product in, in that's in, in built into productification, right, uh, has an aesthetic and it has a discourse and it's infantilizing, and, and it's there to sort of make you feel good in infantile ways. And the circle is a story about somebody who's trying to shank you, but shows you pictures of pretty puppies and smiley faces and, and like gives you good benefits while they're doing it. And you're like, I'm okay with this, right? Like, this is fine. Right. This is totally great. You know? And then, and then the answer is that you become the shanker at the end and you shank them back and you feel doubly fine about it because everything is good. I guess what, there's the point where Tom Hanks says, after you told me your secret, did you feel better or worse? And Emma Watson is like, and, and May May is like, better. I felt better <laughs> after I participated in this thing that we've been talking about as bad for the whole movie. I felt good about it. <laughs> oh, and I think that's the attitude right. that the circle is satirizing and making fun of. And and if I if I were to choose a sort of slightly heavier center of gravity than the others that the movie sort of puts out in its various somewhat unrelated kind of thought experiment monologues, right? Uh, I would pick that one. I would pick the one of the aesthetics that make uh, that make uh, sort of forcing the aesthetics that make forcing people into behaviors that they would not otherwise choose seem acceptable and fun to them. Uh, it's a Tom Sawyer movie. It's a movie about Tom Sawyer painting the fence where he's like trying to convince people that, that they should give him their apple cores for like doing something that makes him rich yeah. or doing, doing his work for him. Right. That kind of thing. Circle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, th- yeah, I mean, there, there's a great deal and it doesn't go into that. I mean, and it's, it, it gets a bit sinister when you sort of, when you look into the kinds of like behavioral science and, and, um, all kinds of, you know, advances in, in knowledge that go into like making you check your Facebook feed a lot or making you, ta- I don't know, what do the kids play today? Not Farmville, surely. Snapchat. But, oh yeah. Oh, you mean video games? Yeah. What or, do they play on games? Oh, um, Uber. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually being serious. So this is a topic I can't d- delve into too much uh, because for professional reasons. But the long and short is that Uber applied gamification uh, to, oh, right. yeah, to, yeah, their that's app been... to keep their drivers on the road. Oh. Yeah, I thought been... you mean kids were running around calling Ubers and making them go to various parts of town without getting on the on the cars. No, no, no Uber not. is running around calling lifts yeah. and making them go around to various <laughs> yeah. parts of town just <laughs> to true, like just to mess with the the competition. Yeah, I mean that sort of that. I mean, aside from like uh, all all manner of what seems to be malfeasance and a, a toxic corporate culture it's it's also uh it's yeah it's also the case and it's been widely reported that that uber uses these things to kind of keep people uh doing you know incentivizing behaviors even without incentives and i mean like one of the one of the interesting things about the behavioral research that's been done around this is that if you give something the shape of a game Right. If you give something the the moves, the kind of the uh, reward system of a game, um, you can get people to do things that you like, even if the rewards are crappy. Right. Even if the rewards have no content, uh, material content as as rewards, you know, um, you can you can make people do things. If you say, like, you're almost you're like three clicks away from an arbitrary milestone, click three more times and you'll get your arbitrary milestone. You can you know, you can make uh, you can make people do things. I mean, the the I don't know. It's it, we're not this kind of podcast, but does it make sense a little bit to hold forth here on the the social media dystopia? Uh, the social media enabled surveillance dystopia um, that that uh, you know that we all live in. Here's another thing that was in 
in the book. The book is a more it's a near future uh, sort of sci-fi satire, but it's it is a future sci-fi satire. So a lot of the stuff uh, in it is not plausible given given current technology. It's extrapolated from current technology, but it's not. Um, you know, it's it's more it's more ubiquitous, and and there's this this constant comic bit where they uh, uh, keep uh, installing more and more monitors on her desk uh, that do yeah. more yeah. and more sophisticated <laughs> things, and they get up to nine or something like that, and they're you know positioned in different ways and and different sizes and things like this, and that's like and it's played for laughs. <laughs> they can, you know uh, it's like Brazil or something like that. They keep, and they uh, do that in the movie but it's not it's not funny at all and i don't even know why they do it yeah it's not it's not lampshaded it's not it's not funny like like in uh, the way pete talks about it or the way pete the way you talked about it before like comedy comes from contrast and you were specifically talking about a contrast between um uh between real and perceived stakes right like contrast between a character and an environment you know um like this this is why you know a movie where everyone's a lemming is not is not funny right like unless it's unless it's highly uh highly highly ironic and like the the film's grasp on irony is tenuous at best and that's you know that's a uh um that's that's troubling right like um because tone is you know a, a consistent tone right is is often the mark of a good or at least a uh well thought out um uh, creative work right and uh consistent and like something uh, and style is consistent distance from reality and not not you know wildly erratic uh distance from distance from reality and the 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 film is just in love with with the visuals so much like all you know all the stuff that that it's impossible you know, I don't know if if you make texting look so attractive, it's impossible to make an anti-text movie. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, have we cashed it out? Is there anything else to? Uh, is there anything else to talk about in this? Uh, uh, well, in this connection? there was the the biggest deal in the movie, like the one scene that struck me and shocked me more than any other scene, and I have to remark on it. Actually, there's a runner-up, and there's a main one. <laughs> so. If I may, <laughs> please. So the runner-up is early in the movie. Emma Watson's car breaks down. What kind of car does she drive? <laughs> it's a it's a tiny hatchback, right? It's a like... two thousand nine. Nothing is what it is. It is a car that has been stripped of any indication that it is a brand of car. the 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 badges are off of it. It seems to have irregular body panels on it, or something. It sort of seems vaguely like an eighties Honda Civic, and might be sort of modeled on an eighties Honda Civic hatchback, like super old at this point. And so, of course, it's going to eventually break down, but. It really struck me in that moment that in this movie that is deigning to be sort of a critical thriller about the intrusive way that we live now, that that they took all sign of a brand off the car because no car company was willing to be the car that Emma Watson broke down in in the movie The Circle. Right. Like that struck me as like, how how much can this movie really be critiquing the modern day if it's sort of this transparently susceptible to like the sort of rudimentary manipulations of the modern day such that like this scene is utterly ruined by the fact that they couldn't put her in an actual car? Well, right. right? That's, I, I, wait, let's just cash out a little bit why, by what you what you mean there. If they had any damn backbone. You're saying they right. would have just picked a car and gone with it rather yeah. than rather than risking, you know, the corporate parent of whatever, whatever amalgam of like, you know, 30 movie studios and like uh, uh, Image Nation Abu Dhabi or something like that and, <laughs> and other production companies and, and uh, financiers and things like this, like uh, all their collective uh, all their collective beholdenness to various corporate so, interests. Okay. All right. All right, I'm going to both support and undermine this point. And then the supporting this is that the truck that Mercer drives uh, also is simply devoid of a logo. And you, you're really conscious of it because you, you see the grill of it 
uh, uh, several times, and we've become so conditioned, I think, to look for the Ford or the Chevy logo or the Dodge logo <laughs> on a on a truck. Is like, which kind is it? Is it an all new yeah. Chevy Silverado? Who this one? Did Audi buy this one? Like, yeah. which one wants okay. to be the official car so, of the circle? So right. there's that, but. I'm pretty sure that in the middle of the movie, uh, when May Emma Watson is driving around uh, her new car that she presumably bought because she's making a lot more money uh, with her job at the Circle, I think it's a Peugeot of all things. <laughs> There's that, you know, that Lion logo uh, oh. is on the steering wheel. I think on the side of the car as well. And as you know, because uh, again, because we're conditioned to look for this sort of thing, I notice that oh, Emma Watson is driving not a beater, but a nice red car. What kind of car is it? And uh, I saw the line in, in the middle of the steering wheel. I was like, huh, that's odd. <laughs> Wasn't expecting yeah. that, but okay, sure. That's really interesting. So maybe this has to do with the movie being put out by Europa Corporation, right? <laughs> like, because that's the Peugeot has a very uh, checkered history in the United States uh, and being released at various times and then being pulled back and never really being successful. And this is a French movie. The Circle, believe it or not, right, is a is a French uh, produced movie. Uh, although I guess it's with mostly American actors and I guess mostly American creatives. So that would explain why they don't have like an American car maker looped in. Uh, so that's really interesting. And it's also possible she's driving a Daewoo or something. I just don't recognize it. Uh, OK, anyway, so that is the second the runner up for the scene in the circle that I thought had the most bite and was the most shocking uh, The in this thriller. The number one scene is that when Emma Watson meets John Boyega. Who we find out later is like the secret co-founder who has been hiding around the circle and is like going rogue and is off the grid, right? He's he's the uh, he's the Arnold from Westworld or whatever. He's like this the secret figure, right? And and he's like he doesn't want to participate in the parties, but he's watching them. And Emma Watson also doesn't want to participate in the parties, and she goes and she finds him, and, and she's kind of a little tipsy, and he's you know just sort of standing there, and he's cute, and she goes up to him and talks to him and uh and he says oh do you want a drink and she says yeah they ran out of booze and john boyega uh star of the moment reaches down into the bushes and pulls out a bottle of cupcake white wine <laughs> like very specifically do you have you guys do you guys drink cupcake white wine occasionally is that something that ever comes up uh, uh is this a thing like the, uh, oh yeah yeah, cupcake cupcake wines cupcake wines are a real thing. Uh, they're a big thing. Um, they are. I'm like I'm looking it up exactly where they're from now. But uh, the cupcake vineyard is, and it's like it's like a consume. It's like a wide audience mass produced consumer wine that's like pretty nice, right? It's not terrible. It's from California, but it's like it's silly, right? It's like it's like it's it's bridal shower wine is what cupcake is, right? And it's it's you know it, I, I joke about so I joke about a lot how um when one of my sisters, my first sister got married, got married, we had a trolley that took us from the the church to the party. And if we were in the wedding party when I was in the wedding party, I was a groomsman. And so everybody on the on the trolley was drinking Bud Light Lime because my sisters love Bud Light Lime. They like its light and they like the flavor. I don't really like Bud Light Lime so much. So the other option was Barefoot Chardonnay. And I don't know if you guys have had that, but it's similar to Cupcake in sort of like it's not pretending to be from anywhere. It's not they're not telling you. No, it's like a big about, corporate. It's a big corporate yeah, winery. Yeah. It's a fungible commodity. It's commodity yeah. wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I ended up drinking like mo- and I kept trying to share it with people. But nobody wanted it. So I ended up drinking most of a bottle of Barefoot Chardonnay by myself and then like jumping into the pool wearing most of my tuxedo. Right. Like that kind of thing happened. So Uh, so you're saying it was a good wedding. It was a great wedding. It was a great time. Uh, But the point being that like John Boyega picks up the, the cupcake wine is not a masculine beverage. And I know that we shouldn't care about this as forward thinking people. And I just sort of shared with you a moment of a little bit of vulnerability, but like also like who cares, right? Drink what you want to drink. Drink wine. If you want to drink wine, it's fine. But if you're not 21 years old, you know, don't drink wine. And, and regardless, please drink responsibly and don't drink and drive. But the point is that John Boyega picks up this bottle of cupcake wine that he has hiding in the bushes. And he says, you know, you want this? It's my party drink is what he says. 
<laughs> and and I know that you guys aren't going to laugh at this because you don't know what cupcake wine is. But if you know what cupcake wine is, the idea that it is John Boyega's party drink is hilarious. Sure, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, it, uh, it's totally out of it's totally out of character for the right. Like it should be like Jolt Cola and grain alcohol or something like that. <laughs> if he's a if he's a, a real well, like, hardcore program, they, they couldn't even get Dodge to put their name on the car, and Dodge will put their name on like a flaming pile of trash that's hurtling through a concrete wall in a Fast and Furious movie. But they got cupcake for the wine, guys. Like, they got the cupcake people. That sweet cupcake money is rolling in. Right? Like, uh, <laughs> it's my party drink. And <laughs> That is the true dystopia, right? Yeah, where where cupcake like, wine is a party. Just where like Mark drink. Zuckerberg like hides in the hides in the bushes and just drinks white wine straight out of the bottle. Like that's that's the world we live in in the circle. Mark Zuckerberg has planted <laughs> bottles of wine in various bushes around the Facebook <laughs> campus so that he, when he's standing around and needs a drink, he can just like, it, is a, it, is a, it is a thriller of such banal terror that the only <laughs> thing hiding in the bushes is bachelorette party white wine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, those those girls get, uh, you know, they're they're not joking. around. Oh, that's what I'm saying. They are. And I'm not I'm not disparaging them. I'm just thinking that, you know, Cupcake has a time and a place. And you know what? If the, if it were a bachelorette party and it was that time of night, they would have moved beyond the cupcake already. Right. right? <laughs> they would have started with the cupcake. Right. That's, not an that's the right. That's the that's the. Uh, the early stages of the night when the when the mothers in law are have joined you for like the first you know the first leg of the of the party, uh, right. but yeah maybe maybe we're revealing that we know too much about the about about this, Pete. Um, Look, uh, the circle knows everything, so I'm at least allowed to know this. All right, <laughs> all right. Total transparency on this podcast. Oh, we yeah. know about the mother in law segment of bachelorette parties. All right. well, we know a lot of what happens about bachelorette parties, like when you guys all play settlers of Catan together we know that happens <laughs> yeah right that's the You're main laughing, Mark. that's the main activity i think oh okay um, all right good i hope because something about the longest road i don't know never mind it's um <laughs> all right i feel like we have to we have to call it off there this has been another overthinking podcast thank you very much mark and pete for completing the circle uh with me and thank you for listening check out the uh the Book Club for George Orwell's 1984 in the Overthinking It store. And hey, consider becoming a member if you want to uh, help us do what we do uh, on the internet. Uh, and, and until next week, we will be doing it on the internet. Where? At overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs> There's something very important we we didn't talk about during the podcast, which is uh, Emma Watson's ringtone at the beginning of the movie. Huh? <laughs> when true simplicity is yeah. gained, it's a, that to was, bow and was... to bend, we will not be ashamed. Or the techno the techno remix of that that the uh, uh, that the thing ended with. Yeah, good, nice, nice. Always subtle when you bring in the shaker hymn to your your uh, yeah. your story about technology. Yeah.